Welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast. This is the episode you've all been waiting for. We're getting into border collies and talking about sheepdog trials. What started as a couple of men making a bet in a pub in Wales in the 1800s has become an international sport with everyone of all ages competing on many levels with their dogs. My guest today, Lisa Wright, is a retired professional dog trainer. These days, Lisa and her dogs are multi-USBCHA Open Trial winners, Canadian Championship Double Lift finalists, Calgary Stampede finalists, and Meeker semifinalists. Lisa is the president of the Canadian Border Collie Association, past vice president of the APDT, and my favorite thing, she's Griffin's breeder. These days, she is focused on trialing and has no current breeding plans. Lisa lives on her farm in Athabasca, Alberta, with her dogs, her husband Travis, and their sheep and livestock guardian dogs. In this episode, Lisa explains what a sheepdog trial is, and we dive into one of our favorite topics, border collies. Lisa sat down to chat right off her win at the Hurricane Hills trial with her dog Star, who is Griffin's mum. This is an excellent primer on sheepdog trials, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This episode is brought to you by my new book, Urban Sheepdog. It is a user manual designed for anyone out there who has a herding breed dog living in a pet home. Most of my clients are healers and border collies and other herders struggling to fit into their new role as non-working dogs. You can order the book on Amazon by searching Urban Sheepdog. And without further ado, here's Lisa. I'm here with Lisa Wright, and Lisa Wright is um, someone very um, exciting for me to talk to because not only is she a trialing, uh, a border collie handler and trial trialer, I'm not even sure what the correct term is, but Lisa is also um, where I got my dog Griffin, who so many people out there know, and Griffin has... Uh, He's really kind of exploded on the internet. People just love him and uh, and I love him and he is truly the love of my life. So um, I have a soft spot in my heart for Elisa and for her dogs. And she's here to, today to talk about all things trialing and sheepdog trials. And, um, and this is a topic that is really exciting for me because it's just, it's a world that I'd love to know more about. So um, I'm really excited to dive into it and find out more about it and um, and hear all about the dogs and star who is griffin's mom as well will come up i think quite a bit in this podcast so welcome lisa thank you for for joining me today thanks for having me <laughs> so let's um start from the from the beginning so like i think when um we talk about trialing like i kind of grew up watching the bbc and there's a lot of you know working sheep dogs and stuff on on i remember that fondly growing up and we watched you know all creatures great and small and oh, had all the james harriet books and things <laughs> like that around the house um and i for fun um and this is not everybody's cup of tea but i watch a lot of um trials on on yep. youtube and just online um but what exactly is it when we're watching it and when you're doing it? What exactly, in a nutshell, is a sheepdog trial? Sure. Okay. So the type of dog trial that I go to and compete at are USBCHA or ISDS style field trials. Um, and for anybody that watched Babe, uh, basically, that's a good example of an ISDS style uh, field trial. Um, all the components in a field trial are based on practical work. 
the border collie was bred to gather livestock. So when the dog leaves your feet, goes out to the end of the field and brings the sheep back to you, that's the gather. And that um, really shows their instinct. And then obviously we drive the sheep away through gates to show that if we were moving livestock around the farm or from pasture to pasture, that we could move them into those areas. We put the sheep in a pen. Again, we have to pen them or put them in trailers, that sort of thing. And then uh, we'll, usually there's a shed uh, where we split the sheep into two groups, which if you were a shepherd and you were working out in the field and you needed to treat animals out in the field, you'd need to separate off the ones that you needed to treat or whatever, you're taking the rams out. There's a, there's a practical reason for everything that we do when we're trialing. Um, the important aspect of field dog trials is uh, while they're timed, everybody has a certain number of minutes to finish the course. Um, you're not penalized for taking longer. Uh, the stock is should be moved around in a quiet manner. Um, livestock is raised to gain weight. <laughs> and if you're chasing livestock around, of course, they're not gaining weight. They're losing weight. Um, so you're supposed to show that uh, you can control the an animals in a... Uh, a respectful manner, I guess would be the best way to put it. Okay. So it's, that make, um, that makes sense. It does make sense. Actually. It <laughs> yeah. makes perfect sense. Um, the way that I think about it is it's like a, almost like a replica of the things that they might be doing day to day. If they were actually, if they were working on a farm or working on a ranch and yeah. it's like, um, it's almost a way of just seeing whose dog is better at it or whose dog. Absolutely. Okay. I guarantee you this started two guys in a pub, you know, well, my dog's better than your dog. Oh, you think your dog's better than my dog? Let me show you. And so they started coming out with ways to, you know, show their dogs off. And, and, and so it, the sport's grown from that, but every aspect is important to the breeding of the border collie. Um, but yeah, it's it guarantee it's just guys arguing yeah. whose dog's best and whose ego is bigger, which is also a big aspect to the sport, <laughs> egos. <laughs> well, it's very fun to watch. I mean, I think um, I work with a lot of herding breed dogs, but Border Collies really, to me, are like the poster child. When we, mm -hmm. when we think about herding, um, they're so stylish and so cool to yeah. watch. And they, they really, there's something... For me, I guess. And I think for a yeah. lot of people, there is something sort of romantic about it as well, that it's, there's just this, you know, you're out there with your dog, the landscape is so beautiful, the sheep, everything about it, I just, I think is so fascinating. And it is cool to watch some of those instincts. Like, um, I still, to this day, I never tire of seeing the dog on the outrun, like the, the distance and the speed that they're doing the outrun. Yeah. Um, and when we look at other dogs who are not you know, they want to go sort of like directly to the thing rather than yeah. around like the outrun for those listening and correct me if I'm wrong, but the dog is going to go like out, um, almost in like a pear shape out around behind yes. the stock when you send them out. Right. So, um, even just things like that, it's so cool to watch them do what they were meant to do, I think. Yeah. And I, and, you know, when you mentioned the pear shaped outrun, which is what a good outrun shape should be, if you don't have livestock, uh, you might not understand why the dog is casting out so wide. Uh, the reason why the dog's casting out so wide is if it ran straight up the field to the sheep or the cattle or whatever, they would run away from you. So the dog has to be able to read the livestock and cast out appropriately so that it can get out and around and behind the livestock without upsetting them. 
Then right. when the dog brings the sheep to you, again, it's trying to do it without upsetting them. But that's why you get these big, beautiful outruns. And it's still, I would say every handler still is amazed when you watch a good dog go out, on, especially on a strange field, a field that they've never been on before to, to fetch livestock they've never seen before. And the dog is able to, as it's running out, gauge the livestock and the terrain and figure out how to get out and behind them without upsetting them. It's, I, I like, it's, it's really cool. It is cool. It's like watching, well, I watched you and star at Meeker this year, um, live. And I was like literally biting my nails at parts of that, um, trial. And one of the things I'm always like, do they know where they're going? Because they take off on these outruns. And I'm, I wasn't even sure if they knew where the sheep were, like it's that far away. Right. It's so far away, but to see them do that and just, they're moving so fast, but I'm always like, oh my gosh, like just every part of it. I just find thrilling to be honest yeah. to watch <laughs> oh yeah and so. it is cool and, and and also it's nail biting for us too especially on right. the maker field it's it's a tricky field but the dogs once they're trained at when you send them out first of all at meeker they may not be able to see the sheep very well but there are uh two two gentlemen setting on horseback so they do, the dogs do start to learn to look for things like horses as well if if they're experienced but the dogs also at that point trust you that if you say, you know, go out to my left and bring those sheep in, even if they can't see them, they're going to start looking for them as they go out. And if you watch a good dog as it's running out, it's not just running out blindly, it'll run out, but it's also checking in to see where the livestock is. And then you can see them adjust their course as well. Uh, sometimes they'll come in, the terrain pulls them in, then they see the livestock and they'll kick back out on their own. Um, so they really are reading their livestock all the way out. Um, and that, I mean, part of it is training and part of it is instinct and you can put, you can put some of that into the dog, but the rest of it is in the dog. It was born that way. Yeah. It's so cool to watch. And I, and I'll never tire of it, to be honest. It's just, I think it's, um, mm-hmm. it's it, it, like you, when we're talking about the guys in the pub, my dog is better. No, my dog is better. Well, let's go out and prove it. It also is just a really when we look, when we scale right back and look at dogs, I think it's just a really great example in a nutshell of like what, how selective breeding works, how dog behavior works and all of those things. I just, I find it so fascinating. Yep. So you are like me, you, um, you started as a dog trainer, you were a pet dog trainer for a long time. Um, and you were involved in maybe some other dog sports, but we don't have to get get into that. All kinds of dog sports, (laughs) so many different dog sports. (laughs) Um, so what, how did you make the transition from that to how did you even, how did you end up on a sheep farm with a bunch of border collies? How did that happen? Right. Well, I would partially blame my husband. Um, so I, okay. So I had a dog training facility, met my husband. Uh, one of us had to move. He, uh, had benefits as a dog trainer. I did not. So it seemed like a good decision for me to move. So sold the business and uh, moved up to Athabasca. And at the time I had Australian Shepherds and I'd always, I had played around with a little bit of herding, you know, done the, gone, go to a clinic and then try and trial your dog the next day, that sort of thing. And it had always been an interest of mine. So I had time on my hands and um, I, as much as I told my husband, I was kind of done with the dog. 
deal. We were just going to, you know, I was going to have a couple of pets, whatever. We planted about 400 trees on this property. Uh, and he, you know, he's like, yeah, we don't need fences, blah, blah, blah. Let's just build a forest. So anyways, I wound up going, I, I had a couple of Aussies and I wanted to play around with it. I started driving down to um, Bowdoin, Alberta, which is about three and a half hours from us uh, to take lessons with Randy Dye. And um, so I was driving three and a half hours each way to work my Aussie for maybe about 20 minutes. And um, Travis, uh, that's my husband, at one point said, you know, for the amount that you're spending on fuel, maybe we could get a few sheep. And so... I ran with that, obviously. <laughs> and uh, so we we put up a pen that was uh, the same size as an ASCA arena trial, because at the time I still had the Aussies and I thought, well, I could have an ASCA trial here. And uh, and so I bought six call U's and we put them in that pen. And that's how it started. I continued to take lessons and I realized fairly quickly that while I was you know, progressing, with the Aussies, the folks that were coming with the Border Collie seemed to be progressing much faster than I was. So I bought a started Border Collie. He was about uh, 10 or 11 months old, and he had just the bare, bare basics. And um, that's when things got really serious. Um, <laughs> I quickly realized that uh, I'm a I'm a little bit of a competitive person, and I quickly realized that uh, if I was going to be competitive, I wanted, you know, basically the premier breed for for competing. And I also at that point probably realized that Aska wasn't going to be um, my focus. That I really I I fell in love with watching the watching the border collies and 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 the way they worked and the way they handled livestock and. Uh, yeah. And here I am. Now I have border collies. We wound up at one point with lambs. We probably had about a hundred sheep on the property. Oh wow. Uh, they, they ate all the trees that we planted. The property <laughs> that was supposed to be forest is completely fenced for sheep with all kinds of pens and shelters, et cetera. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's how, wow. it, that's how it came to be. <laughs> that's so amazing. Fair, war fair warning to anyone. Oh, and at the time I had a full set of uh, competition agility equipment and a gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous flat training area. And I realized with, within the first year that I might as well sell the equipment because it yeah. wasn't getting used anymore and it wasn't going to get used anymore. So if you're into agility or other dog sports and you think you want to dip your toe into the herding world, be forewarned. Uh, it can be life-changing. I agree. I'm actually in the process of selling the agility tunnel that I bought <laughs> because, you know, for me, it was fun to, it was something to do with my dog that was like yep. different than my day-to-day -day work with dogs. And I like kind of flexing that muscle of, it was never something that I really wanted to get into or progress in, but Griffin did well at it. We loved going. It was just yep. something for us to do. Um, but hurting is something that I feel like we'll, we both enjoy. Like for me, I'm already, I'm hooked on just the idea of it. And it definitely floats my boat more than the agility world or the like sort yeah. of the, the other sport world. But, um, yeah, and so that's a great question about, so you talked about your Aussies. Um, yeah. and when I came to see you star and, um, Kate, 
who is um, Griffin's half sibling <laughs> um, at a, a trial, um, there was a bunch of border collies and there yeah. was one Kelpie at that trial. Um, yeah. But when I'm watching most of the other trials, we um, it seems to be border collie, border collie, border collie, border yeah. collie. Um, why is that? And do you ever see some of these other breeds? Yeah. So at USBCHA field trials, so the big field trials, um, you will see mostly, mostly border collies. You will see the occasional Kelpie. Rarely you will see an Australian shepherd. Um, the reason, well, if I wanted to compete in the Iditarod, I would have Alaskan Huskies. That's the reason. Uh, border collies are still uh, used for real work. This is what they, you know, it's not a case of uh, a breed that was bred to do something that we don't do anymore. Everybody, people are still using border collies for this kind of work day to day. Um, and while you can compete with other breeds and, and Kelpies can be competitive, um, but it, 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 I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel or it, it's hard enough as it is, this is the most complicated thing I've ever done with dogs. And I find it challenging enough with a border collie to be successful. Uh, the thought of putting that much more effort into, and all the other breed people are going to hate me for saying this, but the <laughs> thought of putting that much effort into a different breed to try and get, get to that level, I know for the most part is it's impossible. I, I People will tell me about unicorns. And there are unicorns out there, uh, but I don't want to have to go through a million dogs either to find that unicorn. There are other venues for other herding breeds. Uh, most, most herding breeds are not used in practical settings realistically these days. Um, and again, I'm, there's going to be some haters out there, but you can lose herding instinct so quickly in a breed if you don't select for it if you are selecting for anything but their ability to work it disappears very fast that includes selecting for color might yeah. as well pick you know throw yeah. it out there all right selecting for color selecting for you know people get hung up on oh i want i want the a perfect looking rough coated female blah 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 if that's your focus oh your ears need to be, yeah <laughs> right but oh their ears i want a perfect tipped ear set yes, that's as soon I as you yes as soon as you start selecting for things other than workability you lose it and so you will see that in other breeds it's not that they can't work but they are certainly not working to a level where a farmer or rancher would find them useful. Um, that's just, it's just the way it is, you know? Boy, I feel I, like that would be a great, I mean, we could talk about like selective breeding yeah. and traits and yeah. stuff until the cows come home. Yes. And I, I am like, I love that topic. Um, and I always think about it, like, why would you take a knife to a gunfight? Like if you have right. something that does the job that you need, why would you try and come in and bend something into something that maybe they aren't right? Um, if and, you need brain surgery, would you hire a dentist? Yeah. Yeah. They both work on heads. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. It's, I mean, I see it a lot with, um, in the cattle dog world, I have a lot of mm -hmm. people that say like, where can I take my cattle dog to like herd sheep? 
for me, sometimes I get, um, like I'm always just, uh, you know, if I throw back to like my animal welfare days, that's where I, Mm -hmm. you know, my, my career was animal welfare for a long time. Um, my hackles go up for the sheep because I'm like, I don't Mm -hmm. know that we should just be throwing a cattle dog on a bunch of sheep and letting them run loose. I agree entirely. You know, something that, so most people that people will call sheepdog trialing a sport. I consider it a lifestyle. Um, it's more than a sport. Uh, once you get into this, most, most people own their own livestock Mm -hmm. and the sheep, I have really learned to love sheep as much as border collies. I love guardian dogs because of this sport as well, right? Um, the sheep don't ask to play this game. They, if they had their choice, they'd never see a dog. And so while obviously when you're starting young dogs and stuff, it's not always perfect. However, you do want to make it as stress-free as possible for the livestock and now, I mean, having said that, there's lots of herding breeds out there that really they don't want to work very much, which is fine. It's not stressful for the livestock because there's not much happening. If you have, though, let's say, you know, with cattle dogs, right? If you've got an aggressive cattle dog, well, the first thing to to look at is that the, the part of their breed name is cattle dog. So if they're really forward and not, not a lot of feeling and they like to use their teeth, they might not be appropriate for for sheep. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, if they're used to put, if, if they've been used a lot for pushing animals in a feedlot up alleys where they have to get in behind and, and, and bite to move super. But if you t- take them and put them in a round pen with three sheep, mm-hmm. the sheep are not going to enjoy that process. Yeah. And especially if it's, um, I think there is this concept in the pet world and I'm not like, I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus but this concept yep. that like it's fun for the dog right it's fun for the dog yeah. just take them and let them run on the sheep like that and i've heard yeah. of places where um yes. you can do that and i i'm always i'm i i also think it's probably dangerous for the dog i mean i don't know like that whole the all the ins and outs of it but i would yep. be concerned if if i was going somewhere where they're like yep here like pay your money yeah. and you go and have fun um especially with some of these breeds that are not known to be as kind, yeah. <laughs> um, for lack of a better word. And yeah. actually, one thing that um, you mentioned that I would love to touch on too is um, when we're breeding for certain things, we don't necessarily get like workability or the traits that we want. Yeah. Um, and I see that a lot where we're the the dogs have been bred for color or for something, yeah. um, but we're not breeding against some of the traits either. So they kind of drift around. And then we have dogs yeah. that are hurting all sorts of stuff. And they're like that some of that stuff is still there, but they're not necessarily like in a well, like a nice little package. Yeah, it's, like it's muddled. It's, it's muddled. muddled. And, 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 you know, and to be fair, because I guarantee anybody out there right now that's got a red border collie or a merle border collie be like hey my dog is as one. good as yes. your dog <laughs> yes so but to be fair you can take two classic black and white border collies i don't care whether they're smooth coat or rough coat or whatever from working lines pedigrees bred like royalty and you can still get junk i have seen dogs who pet on their pedigree you're like oh my god this dog should be winning everything and they have no interest whatsoever right? Or they have all the wrong interest. So if breeding was simple and straightforward, oh, well, it'd probably be boring. 
You know yes. what? And then we'd have nothing. And then we'd have no reason to compete because we'd all just have the best dogs, right? They'd all be the same. So it's complicated. It's complicated. But given how complicated it is, I personally wouldn't muddy the waters by saying, oh, my dogs have to look exactly like right. this picture. Yes. And that's something I still get on a daily basis is, um, oh, what is your dog mixed with? <laughs> so for those who haven't seen Griffin, I think he's spectacular. Um, and he's very, he's a smooth coat, black and white border collie. Yeah. Um, I think he's very classic. I just like, I just love him. I mean, I am guilty for, you know, choosing a bottle of wine based on the label. And I just, I think he's <laughs> gorgeous. I can't stop looking at him. Um, but um, and maybe it's a Canadian thing and we're not used to what working yeah. with collies look like, but I have so many people that are like, oh, what a cool dog. What is he mixed with? Or if, if I say he's a border collie, they'll say, oh, is he a pit bull mix or, oh, is yeah. like, what, is, he got bull terrier one time. Obviously I don't breed for looks. Is he a pit bull mix? But... Well, I think it's the, I think it's a smooth coat that throws people yeah. um, who aren't in the world. And certainly when you see. Like if you go on and look at, you know, dogs in the UK, they're not, they don't look like what um, most of us think these like fluffy, like beautiful, yeah. long coated border collies look well, like. And is it correct that that's because they're not breeding for looks, they're breeding for their workability? Uh, okay. So that's a loaded question. All right. So a couple things. First of all, I love the fact, uh, one of the things, because uh, back in the day, I may have shown dogs say that quietly. And so obviously show dogs is all about looks, right? I love the fact that none of my dogs look the same. They all look like individuals. And for, to me, anyways, my neighbors can't tell them apart, but to me, <laughs> they look very different from each other. Um, I used to have a, a border collie that he, he was, uh, smooth coat, prick eared and had quite a bit of uh, ticking. So he looked really looked like a healer mix. Right. And sure. I used yeah. to get people all the time, same thing. They're like, Oh, what's, what kind of dog? And I'd be like, no, he's, he's a border collie. And they'd be like, no, no, but what's he crossed with? No, no, he's purebred. He's registered. And, and at the time his sire was like the top dog in North America, right. but people, they would give me this look like, Oh, sorry, you got taken, you know, like you're so gullible. You yes, that's a border that so yeah. yeah. Now, as far as the whole smooth coat thing, this is where it gets loaded. The breed is evolving. All breeds evolve. There are far more smooth coats now than they were even 15 years ago. And, and that is the influence of certain lines and certain handlers and what's become popular. And it does change the look of the breed. So that's something to consider when we talk about breeding for looks. So if we're seeing changes in looks, are we also seeing other changes in the breed? Which is a topic that gets discussed under handlers' tents. Um, you know, we can go down that rabbit hole some other time. But but there are far more smooth coat border collies now than there used to be. Most people grow up in their mind with a picture of a border collie as being black and white, rough coated with chipped ears. Yes, uh, yeah. they still exist. I have a couple of them, um, but <laughs> but when you're looking around, you'll see a lot more smooth coats now. So, but because there's so many more border collars over in the UK, people are just used to seeing them. We don't see as many in Canada. So people are not as used to seeing a smooth coat border collar here yeah. in the pet world. 
Wow. Yeah. There is so, I mean, that is a rabbit hole. I could go down that. Yeah. We could probably spin off and do an, an entire new podcast about um, that alone. And, you know, the, the one thing, and I wonder if you've ever heard this before, um, I see it a lot with healers where people will say that red healers, um, are more wild and crazy than oh, blue yeah. healers. Um, and I've also heard the same about smooth coats, that smooth coats are more wild oh, than, they're... um, yeah. a rough coat. Do you think that there's, um, truth to the anecdote? <laughs> okay. Well, there, you know, it... Yeah. I, when I was in Aussies, oh, the red ones are spicier than the blues and all that sort of stuff. Um, there are theories about the smooth coats versus the rough coats. I I think it's individual. However, there probably are lines that all look the same, right? And people go, oh, those dogs are quieter or those dogs are busier or whatever. And so because they happen to be we'll just we'll pick on the smooth coats, you know, there, this line, which happens to be just all smooth coats, because that's what that handler prefers, right? And that breeder prefers. And let's say they've got tempers, right? So everybody says, oh, it's the smooth coats that have tempers, but it's that particular line, whereas someone else may have a line of rough coats and they're, you know, they're basically comatose most of the time. They say, well, it's because they're rough coated. Currently, my most laid back dog on the property is a smooth coat. Um, I guess no one told him, but well, it, I'm the opposite. So there we have um mine yeah. is the 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 wild child. <laughs> well, that's because he's a smooth coat, you see. Exactly. He's a smooth coat, so he is wild. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he's but he's out uh but his mother's a rough coat. So his mother is a rough coat, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's again something that people discuss usually while they're having cocktails. Um, and it goes on for hours and goes in circles and the next day you have the same conversation because there's no real answer to it. I love it. I could talk about this stuff until, yeah, literally until yeah. the cows come home. Um, so when we're talking about, so you've got a trial dog. So, you know, yeah. we're looking at a dog who is going and competing at sheepdog trials. Is this the same thing as a working dog or is there crossover or are they separate or what can you guide us through the difference yeah. between the two? Yeah. They're, okay. So the best dogs, should be able to do everything. And again, another rabbit hole. Ranchers will say, well, my dog's a work dog. It knows how to move lots of livestock. It's not pushing three sheep around a trial field because typically at dog trials, you're pushing three to five sheep, partly because people that don't go to dog trials don't realize. So the trial we were at, at last weekend, if there were 75, well, there would be 30 runs ran on four sheep. So that's 120 sheep. She probably had 200 sheep there um, because the sheep don't keep getting rerun. Uh, so it's not like we bring our own sheep, right? And if everybody ran on 20 sheep, you can imagine there were 75 dogs ran one day there, how many sheep you would need to have to host right. a trial, right? Yeah. So, so some people say, well, my, you know, the practical work is better. Some people will say uh, the opposite. What I feel separates a good trial dog from just a good work dog, uh, because my good trial dogs are good work dogs, is that I can take my good trial dog to a field she's never seen before, to work livestock that she's never seen before, and I expect her to do well. Uh, whereas farm dogs and farm work, um, farm work is repetitive. The livestock gets into the routine, the dog gets into the routine. And so it gets easier. Um, my, I have a young dog that I'm running right now. 
guess what? He looks fantastic at home. Does not look as shiny when he goes to a trial because everything's different. And right now that's kind of blowing his mind a little bit. Um, the question is, is he a good farm dog or is he a good trial dog? I don't know yet. It'll depend on what he does on the trial field. But as a farm dog, love him. Absolutely love the dog. Very cool. Is that Jake? Yeah, that's Jake. Yeah, he's, he's I love great. Jake. When so when we're talking about so there's some cool traits that you're talking about there and even just um the dog's ability to sort of shift from one environment to the next and things like that. But what else would you be looking for when you're let's say you have a litter of pups and you're gonna pick one yeah. or you're looking for a dog that you want to start um trialing with, what traits are you looking for? So with puppies, uh it's a crapshoot. Uh, to be honest, because you could pick, you could pick a pup out of the litter and say, oh, he's the most confident or he's this or he's that. He may be completely different when you put him on livestock and you really can't tell at eight weeks. There are all kinds of superstitions, right? People will pick the quietest one, the one that runs to them. Um, I may have picked Moss because he has the same black leg as his mother and he had rear dew claws, which I knew came from her. Like So there, there are all kinds of superstitions. So you can't tell. Uh, obviously, generally, I wouldn't pick a puppy that's terrified of everything. Yeah. And I wouldn't pick a puppy that's necessarily so bold that he's not sensitive to anything. I would certainly look at the parents, see what their working style is like and see what they're like to live with. That's that's how I would pick. And then of course we would look at pedigree and all that sort of stuff. But I would pick a puppy based on what the parents are, are showing me um, and go from there and then hope for the best because unfortunately they they do not all turn out to be trial dogs. They could turn out to be other great things, but they aren't all trial dogs. Um, as far as a young dog, I mean, so if I was looking at something that was older, that was, let's say showing interest, I would look at its method, the way it approaches stock, um, how it casts around that sort of thing. And then I personally, I'm not fond of squirrels or spooks. So I would avoid either of those traits in an older dog. It's funny. There's some crossover there with like the things that I would recommend for somebody looking for a pet dog mm -hmm. as well you know like yes. look at the pair like if we could take one piece of this um information and and send people out into the world with it it would be please look at parent dogs when you're when you're buying a puppy so many times people will say to me like oh well I went to get my puppy and the mom was put away because she wasn't good with strangers yes. and things like that yes. and I'm like well for us that's a red flag um for the puppy person sometimes they're thinking it's like all in how you raise them like when I get them home it's going to be fine yeah. genetics really matter in so many ways especially shocking um, shocking that genetics actually matters but yes yes and there's a lot of things I think people we don't realize are passed down um genetically so oh yeah there's weird quirks that you'll see about like I don't know pick something like the, the way the dog crosses its feet and you look and you go, wow, mom does that or grandma does that, right? That sort of stuff absolutely gets passed down. Uh, and the other thing about meeting, you know, checking out the parents, especially in this day and age where anybody can post whatever they want on social media or build a fancy website, people can say whatever they like. Uh, if you don't know them personally, then take it with a grain of salt, you know, get, get good referrals. If you can't actually meet, then get good referrals from people you trust. Um, I, like I will, I certainly I buy puppies 
sight unseen, um, as in they're shipped to me and I, I do as much research as I can. Um, and, and in general, I know the people generally, I know the people that I'm buying from, um, uh, or I know their reputation. Uh, I also know that those puppies may or may not turn out to be what I hope for. Even if that breeder has done exactly all the right things, it's still, you know, but what I'm looking for is probably to a higher level than, you know, a, a lot of the dogs that haven't turned out to be top trial dogs for me have been absolute love, lovely companions and have been, you know, some of them gone to do other things and they've been fantastic at that. But as a base, when you're looking for a puppy for anything, you really should look at the parents. Yeah. Well, many people would probably be surprised to know that I got Griffin sight unseen. I mean, I literally sight and I based on a website and social media. (laughs) Well, you know what? I looked around a lot. Like, so for those who missed it, um, Lisa is um, Griffin's breeder and I looked around a lot and there was certain things that I wanted. Um, And we had a conversation on the phone and um, I asked you questions about some of the things um, that I was looking for in relation to the the breeding dogs, what you had. Um, and I got Griffin sight unseen and it's the best thing I ever did. So I told you every, exactly what you wanted to hear. (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it, um, for me, it was, it, I mean, I knew this is a thing that I think we also, I'm so glad you're bringing it up, um, for, for, um, not just in the sense of like, you know, working trial dogs, but also in the sense of pet dogs, there are no guarantees. These dogs, dogs aren't clones and even litter mates from litter, like puppies within a litter are not carbon copies of each other. So what we're trying to do is stack the deck in our favor as best as we can. And, um, I just happened to get the luck of the draw there because, um, I did not, not only did I not pick him, um, I didn't meet him and I have never been happier with a dog. (laughs) So it works because I just, I picked him out specifically. I knew that this was the one that would yes. suit you. Yeah, that's exactly. As much as I happened. said it was a crapshoot earlier, no, no, no. When I'm picking out a puppy for someone else, I know exactly which puppy they should have. <laughs> the funny part is, is um, I think I probably would have picked like a rough coat. I think I would have, you know, like I think I said to you. Um, uh, I just want a boy. I think that was what I yeah. said because yeah. I had two, two females at home and I, I wanted a boy to counter, which is a good choice. <laughs> yes. Um, and I didn't know, and I would have, if I think if, if I had picked, I would have picked on, you know, cute. the rough coat cute. And I love him. Don't get me wrong, but I yep. do love like a rough coated dog. I just like the look of them. Um, yeah. So I will say that when, when it comes to puppies, People will always say, and to be clear, I'm not a big time breeder. I I have no litters plan. I'm not advertising anything. But people will say, the most important thing to me is temperament. Everybody says that. Nobody says anything (laughs) but that. And then if they have a choice, it always comes down to looks every single time. And even when I'm saying, you know, this one's a little bit shy, but this one, blah, blah, blah. If the shy one is pretty, that's the one they want. We can't yeah, ourselves. I will admit to being probably somewhat guilty when it comes to that train of thought. Like, I just can't help myself. And oh, and I honestly, um, when I'm picking a puppy too, I can't help but look at the pretty ones, you know. And given that I know I have, I have no idea what they're going to be like in a year, why not pick the pretty one? Why not? I mean, I do think Griffin is very handsome. He is handsome. 
so okay you come home you got the puppy so you you know you you stack the deck in your favor um you're hoping that this dog is going to become your next trial dog where do you start are you how long are we looking at and what are you what are you where do you start and how old do you start right okay so let's say I bring the puppy home at eight weeks, uh, the first few months, it just learns how to, to be a puppy, a well-mannered puppy. So, uh, everybody raises their puppies different, but my puppies are are house dogs. They come in the house. Um, so they learn basic manners, like stay off the furniture. You can chew this, but don't chew that. Come when you're called, uh, stay there while I do whatever I need to do base, just basic stuff. They also follow me around, uh, on the farm. So they do see sheep and guardian dogs and tractors and all that sort of stuff right from the beginning. Um, uh, I will teach them how to tie out um, because that's practical for us. So the dogs learn to be tied to a fence and just wait there quietly. And that'll go on. Wow. Like they might start showing some interest around six months, but really I don't start, I guess, training them till I've got two pups right now. They're about 10 months and I've just started them now. Um, so they've got the first, uh, six or eight months where they're just basically being puppies going on lots of walks. We go for lots of walks, they hang out and they, they spend a lot of time just hanging out, uh, being dogs, but being well-mannered dogs, which means don't be stupid in the house. Uh, you can play with that outside. If you want to wrestle, do that outside, that kind of stuff. Um, and Right now, the two 10 months old, this is all individual. Some dogs turn on faster than others, that sort of thing. But right now they're getting worked a few times a week and it's probably about 10 minutes a session, maybe. Uh, Right now they're in a fairly, yeah, it's not very long. Um, And and then as it progresses, they're generally ready to trial. Some people are amazing and they get their dogs trial ready. Like they're running just over a year of age. I'm not that fast. Um, maybe I'm not that good. <laughs> it takes a little longer, but somewhere around a year and a half to three years, they're ready to trial. Three years is getting used to be dog. It, dogs seem to be ready to trial later. Uh, people are becoming more efficient or the breed is changing or whatever. And you're seeing younger and younger do- dogs competing, but somewhere between a year and a half, three years of age, they're usually trial ready. Um, and trial ready would be nursery pro novice, which is a lower class. There's no shed and of course isn't as big. They round four, most dogs are ready, ready for open by four. Some of them are ready. Good ones are ready for open younger. Um, having said that though, just because a dog shows all kinds of promise really young, doesn't mean that it will be better in the end than a dog that took longer to get there right. um, for various reasons. They kind of hit their prime around six, I would say. And most dogs will trial till about 10 years of age. Occasionally you'll see an 11 year old. The issue when they get older on the big courses is just, they they may still have all the talent and everything. They don't always have the wheels that they used to. And that will catch them up short. So, you know, so most people will retire them around 10. Around 10. Okay. And um, just for listeners, um, what does open mean when you talk about an open trial? So open is the highest level. Um, In the UK, really, they have open and they have nursery and not much else. Uh, In North America, we have open and then we have pro novice. And then depending on the area, they have novice 
or ranch, I think it's called. It, it just depends on your area. Here it would be novice. And so novice is a small, in Alberta, it's a small course with a short outrun of, oh, I don't know, I'd say 75 to 100 yards. And and the dog has to fetch sheep to you. It might have one leg of a drive where the dog has to push sheep away to a panel, which wouldn't be that far away, and then put the sheep in the pen. Pro novice is a larger outrun, usually two or 300 yards. Uh, same with nursery. They're basically, it's basically the same course. Um, a larger drive and you drive out, out drawing something. It's a big triangle. So you drive out to a set of panels, then you drive across the field to another set of panels, and then you drive back to the pen, put the sheep at the pen. Open is, depending on the course, I mean, you can have outruns as big as uh, I've, I think the farthest I've sent my dog at a trial is eight or 900 yards. Oh, wow. um, that's big. You don't see that a lot because frankly, you need a giant ch- chunk of land to be able to pull it off. But um, it can be anywhere from 300 to usually five or 600 yards for the outrun, a much larger drive. And then in addition to the pen, there'll be a shed and or a single as well, where you're splitting the sheep into two groups. Um Right. Yeah. So um, if you are listening, you've never you haven't seen a trial or um, so panels are essentially like a gate, right, that the dog has to move. Yes. So there's a there's basically two panels and in the middle would be the gate that you're pushing the, the sheep through. If you miss the gate, if they go around the outside, obviously, in a practical setting, there would be a fence. To, to You don't have a gate out in the middle of the field. There would be a fence, but you're showing how accurate your dog is. So ideally you want straight lines. So when the dog brings the sheep to you, it's a perfectly straight line, a tight corner, a turn around you out to that first panel, a straight line out to that panel, and then a tight turn, straight line to the next panel, tight turn back in. Every all every time you deviate from that straight line, you lose points. Every time you make a wide turn or sheep slip around that panel, you lose points. Anytime it, there anything is less than perfect you lose points um and so points you start with a certain amount of points and lose them as you go so a high yeah. score simply means you haven't lost as many points is that that's right that's so right instead and of like gaining on, points exactly so you start out with a perfect score uh so at most trials if it's uh pen shed or shed pen it's 100 points and every deviation you lose points now some trials you may have scores that are close to a hundred to win because uh, for whatever reason, the sheep are easy to handle. The trial field is simple and straightforward. Then it becomes a real handling trial um, about those straight lines and those tight turns and everything. You may have another trial where the scores are all quite low, say 60s, 70s, 80s, because the terrain is difficult. The sheep are difficult. There's, there are other, the weather is poor. There are other factors affecting that trial that causes the scores to be lower. So that's why there, there's no qualifying. People don't, uh, people don't get titles. Uh, it's just a straight competition. Highest score wins. Um, and the scores, generally, when you look at trial scores, you'll see, you can judge how difficult the, the trial is by uh, how low the scores are and how many sets of letters there are. Mm-hmm. You'll see uh, yes. DQ for dogs that that DQ, which is usually because they're off course, or but mostly because they bit, uh, or uh, RT, which is retired, and that's when the handler goes, "This is not our day. It's not happening today." <laughs> and you save the judge some time and say, "Thank you. I'm going to walk." Yeah, um, I loved that about like watching the trial when I came to see you. The one yeah. thing that I really liked was that 
um, there were dogs who they, the, the, um, handler waited and waited and waited and was there all weekend and probably traveled to be there. Like you can imagine all of the work that goes into it. They get out on the field, they send the dog off. It never finds the sheep. Yeah. It runs amok. They call yeah. it back. They step back, and they the 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 attitude was just kind of like, well, you know, maybe next time. Yeah. Um, and I really liked that kind of laid back attitude about it. Like, I'm sure it's got a sting on some level, especially if you paid money and traveled to be there. But I liked that it was there wasn't this like expectation that they had to be perfect. Right. That it was just part of the well. And I'm not trying to put words in their mouth, but it seemed like it was like just you know part of it was just being there and doing yeah. the thing. If this sport teaches you an awful lot about humility and you have to be prepared to fail and there's nothing wrong with failure. I mean, Jake, I love that dog. I love working that dog. We have got, we're very consistent. We've got nothing but letters this year. Um, and yet I persist. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, and star sure star had a great weekend on Sunday on Saturday. She probably got the lowest score she's had in ages. It just, that's just the way it is. You know, you can prepare, prepare, prepare. The top handlers are the most prepared. So they don't have as many bad days as most handlers, but they still have bad days as well. And yes, absolutely. You can drive for, I, this was years ago. I drove down uh, to the finals in Klamath Falls. So that's, I don't know, at least two good days drive. And with a dog in nursery that I was very confident with, he had just been burning it up up here and uh, sent him, you know, went to the post and literally said to him, oh, oh let's have some fun. Sent him uh, the guys that were setting, holding the sheep at the top, for some reason decided that to make it easier on the young dogs, they would kneel down in the grass instead of standing like they normally do. He got around to the top and went, oh my God, what's that kneeling in the grass? And that was the end of our run because his head came up going like, what the heck? The sheep said, oh, this dog's not paying too much attention, bolted. And by the time I recovered, we were we were basically off course. So two days of driving each way to spend a week down there for one run and it was over less than 30, well, maybe 30 seconds into it. So, <laughs> oh boy. Well, yeah. that's, yeah. I mean, there, there was one dog. I remember at the the trial that I, when I came to see you and the, the, he was there, the handler was there all weekend sitting mm-hmm. there with his dog. Mm-hmm. He went out, the dog ran. I w- actually went in to have a pee in the porta potty, and I said to Aiden, uh-huh. "Here, hold Griffin." <laughs> and we yeah. were like, "Well, back from the field." And I came out and I said, "How did it go? Like, how did they do?" And he's like, "Well, the dog ran all through <laughs> the field, ran over out of the field, came over, saw Griffin, and tried to play with Griffin." And <laughs> that's when the the handler called it. And but he was he was like, "Well, he just got." I just remember him like going back, and it was like it just was what it was. Yep. And I, I, yeah. I really envy that because I think we do put a lot of pressure on our dogs and on ourselves. On ourselves too. Yeah. yeah. So then that um, begs a question: um, You drive all that way, you spend all the money, you walk in on the field, mm-hmm. use thirty seconds to get two letters <laughs> beside yeah. your name. What is it that you love about it? Um, what draws <laughs> you into it, and what t- what keeps bringing you back? Yeah, it keeps bringing me back because I keep saying I gotta quit the sport because it's crazy spending all this money and all this time, et cetera, et cetera. But here I am. I there is it, well, so first of all, it's the most complicated thing I've ever done with the dog. 
And so I've, I've been doing this 15 years now. I still feel like I have so much to learn. Every time I go out and work a dog, I'm learning something new. Um, it's the only thing I've ever done with dogs that involves another species. And so I've had to learn an awful lot about sheep um, and the way they think. You know, there's there's obviously there's human psychology, there's dog psychology, there's sheep psychology. They have brains too, and they use them. Um, and I think, well, it's a bit like gambling. It's so hard. Mm-hmm. And occasionally you get a big win and it pays off. And that holds you for a long time and it keeps you going. And you just think, oh, next time, because it, it's a pretty good feeling when, when you do win at a, you know, at a dog trial. So, but I also, I think it's because of the training. I probably enjoy training the dogs more than I enjoy trialing the dogs. I love getting together with like-minded friends and we'll spend the day working dogs and we'll sit on the back of a tailgate taking turns and we'll work dogs and we'll set things up and let's see how this works. And then if, you know, things go a little bit sideways, we'll talk about what's going on and help each other um, with, with our problem because either you've seen it or, you know, somebody has had a similar issue and how do you work through it? That sort of, I, like so there is obviously a social aspect to it i i do like working with the people that are involved in the sport mm-hmm. and uh, yeah yeah it's very cool and i don't know again i i think there is something for me there's something romantic about it like you know i don't know that the average person is driving multiple day road trips to go yeah. and watch border collies run around a field for their vacation <laughs> like i did you do <laughs> um but i was hooked like I just there was something about the entire thing I think for me part of it was being around people who seem to get dogs I think um there was a lot of normal dog behavior that was yeah. accepted and I like I just love that when I am around it yeah. um and I again I mean I think it's just so fun to watch these dogs really are beautiful and they're like watching synchronized swimmers they're just they are and but you know you made a good point there about normal dog dog behavior it's uh, you know we'll spend a whole weekend together people treat them like dogs and and by treating them like dogs it's nice to watch at the end of the night you know people are all running their dogs there could be 50 dogs out running around it's no big deal um and so the vibe is different than some of the other sports that I've been yeah. involved in. It's very practical. Most of the people have livestock. Most of the people spend all of their time around animals. And uh, so it's, I would say it's a relaxed atmosphere, if uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's a few things about it, like even pulling up, there was like all of the trailers, like people's tents, like it just, um, Again, there's just something about like getting out with your dog and doing some of these things and also just the the lifestyle, I think, that is really yeah. appealing. So I can totally see. I didn't know that I would love owning a tractor before I got Border Collie. Oh, I would she, love to own a tractor. I love my tractor. She is fantastic. Her name is Olga. And, you know, and that, so the Border Collie's got me hooked on tractors too so <laughs> yes i i could use your tractor right now actually if you ever want to drive it to british columbia <laughs> oh yeah sure. no, i'll just mail her to you <laughs> yeah. um so one of the things that i love about this sport um is that women are 
we can get out and we can compete on the same, literally the same field as um, our counterparts. Um, so if you were going to give some advice to, like, if you could go back in time, like 30 years or 25 years back in time, what, what advice would you give to yourself starting out? Or what advice would you give to someone who wants to start and doesn't even know where to begin? Well, first thing I would tell myself is why didn't you start 30 years ago? Cause I do feel like I'm a little bit behind the eight ball. I only started, you know, I'm in my fifties. I started 15 years ago. I watched, there are kids. It's, you know, it's humbling to lose to a child, but those children <laughs> have started, you know, they started there. People bring their babies and their toddlers to these things. And I look and I think that toddler will be able to blow a whistle before it can speak. Um, yeah. So start. I still can't start, blow a whistle actually. <laughs> we will work on that. Um, but yeah, start as young as you can um, find it can be hard to find trainers uh, when it comes to, you know, you talked about there are people out there who will just basically say, yeah, give me your money and go out and play with the sheep um, and understand that most people that do this have full-time jobs. They're not training. They're not teaching lessons to make a living. Um, so they have full-time jobs or farms. They are protective over their livestock. Uh, they don't, you know, they, so they're working their livestock respectfully. And every time you start a new dog, the, the, it is, can be a little bit rough on the livestock. Um, but try and, well, first of all, find, find a sheepdog trial, look for the associations, you know, so it, most of the associations in Canada, um, have a website, Alberta Stock Dog Association, uh, BC, would it be the BC? British Columbia Stock Dog Association. Uh, I'm sure Ontario's OBCC. They all have websites, and those websites will have, if nothing else, directors who can tell you, you know, where to find someone that's giving lessons because it is a little bit word by word of mouth. Um, try and get to a trial. Uh, find someone who I would say, for most people giving lessons, uh, are they competing at an open level? That doesn't mean that they're a great instructor and understand that just because I can turn my border collie doesn't mean that I have a, a background in teaching. So I may have some difficulty conveying my method to you if I'm not, you know, if I'm not a professional instructor, but uh, yeah, try and work through the associations to find someone who's qualified and willing to, to help you out. And then the thing to understand is if you don't have livestock, you are looking at a massive commitment um, I work my dogs five days a week. And, mm -hmm. and so I can walk outside my door right now with the youngsters, I've got a, a set of sheep sorted off. So I literally can walk out my door with the dog, go over to the pens and work them. Um, I have a trailer that I trailer sheep to other larger fields. I don't trailer sheep as often as I work the young dogs, just because I have to actually hook up the trailer and then get the sheep and put them in, you know? So if you're having to drive, like I used to three and a half hours each way for a lesson, and you're only able to get that lesson once a month, and you're not able to practice in between, that will be challenging. Mm -hmm. Just like anything, any other skill, if I want to learn how to knit, but I only knit 15 minutes once a month, it's going to be a while before I can knit a toque. Yes. I'm living this right now. So, mm. um, you know, I've spent two years, Griffin is almost two and a half. 
And I've spent two years trying to find um, a good fit for us in terms of yeah. like l- learning how to do this and even just to get started. Um, and I am driving essentially three hours yeah. right now, one way yeah. um, to go to someone who I feel is a good fit and yep. um, a good fit for Griffin, because that was also really important to me. Um, yep. But it's also frustrating because like I was trying to explain it to my husband um, in the sense that like, he's a musician. So I was trying to put it in like, uh, yeah. in terms that he would understand. And I said, can you imagine if you were driving three hours to go somewhere where they were going to show you like one, like little yeah. bit on a piano, one chord. Yeah. you were going to come yeah. home and you had to wait a week and then you had to go back. Um, yeah. it's, you know, is it, is, it, is it even possible? I don't know. I mean, it's all, yeah. it's something that I'm, you know, I feel deeply. And I also wish that it wasn't this hard to find. Um, it's something that I'm really passionate about is like community of people. I don't yep. think it should be this hard to find um, your people in the dog world. And it can right. be, it can be really hard. And I, and I hear that from a lot of clients too. Um, so then that begs the question. And I, I wonder this all the time because I see, um, I guess in the circle that I run in people that yeah. own border collies and things like that, there is a lot of like, novice interest um in doing it in thinking about it in like people that haven't even started but there's interest um and nobody can find a place to go but there seems to be this there is a fascination there um Mm -hmm. so is it a is it dying out is this a dying art or is it making a comeback and will this continue for another hundred years like we've seen it already so i don't think it's a dying sport um I do think that there's an awful lot of interest now from people that don't own livestock. And so, yes, it's frustrating if you live, you know, in the middle of a major center and you have a border collie and you, you've seen the videos and maybe you've been to a trial and you desperately want to try that because you can't find an instructor doesn't mean that it's not happening. Um, and it certainly is because well, I live in Alberta. Livestock production is still a real thing. Uh, dogs are being used every day on farms and ranches in Alberta. Um, so, and then there's a whole pile of us that have have or have had other careers, but have basically spent all our time and money setting things up so that we can have, you know, farms and quotations so that we've got livestock for our dogs to work. you know, we have sheep here. These sheep do not pay the bills. Absolutely not. There's no way that, that, that our mortgage ever got paid off of the sheep (laughs) that we had here. Uh, we, I worked to, to provide the sheep for my dog. So there's a whole pile of people that are doing that in North America, especially in the UK. Oh my God, there's sheep everywhere. You know, everybody's got sheep and dogs and and it's definitely not dead there. And it's part of their culture too, which is why they have one man and his dog on BBC. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So the frustration is, I think from people who live in urban settings, who would like to be involved in the stock dog world and are unable to find an instructor. It's harder to find instructors closer to urban centers as well. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're not in an area with livestock production, it's hard to find livestock. Um, I do, I, there, I know of people who are open handlers who don't have their own livestock. It is possible. It is a huge commitment. Um, and it's a question of 
is it your biggest priority? Um, I, I would say that the sport right now is fairly stable. Uh, certainly if you look around, uh, a lot of us are getting older, but, but I look around too, and I see new people that have come in. And, and so I would say it's stable. Um, and again, understand that most farmers, if you call them and you say, Hey, I'm from the city and I've got a, a dog yes. and it's never mm-hmm. seen sheep before. Can I just let it loose? They're probably not going to invite you on their farm. So, mm-hmm. and that's just them yeah, being practical. That's definitely a thing. I mean, I, I found there was almost like a, um, a rite of passage that I had to like, um, when I was asking around it, there was nobody that taught lessons. Um, and then one person said, well, like, tell me about your dog. And I said, you know, I got him from this place. This is his, you know, his lineage and stuff like that. And they were like, ah, say no more. Like, let me look around and I can probably find you people that can help. And I think that that probably comes from like, you know, there are, there is a desire to just take dogs and like, let them like run loose. Like there has to be a, you know, people will make, it sounds elitist. Oh, where did you get your dog from? Can I see its pedigree, et cetera. And, and that sounds very snobby and very elitist. However, again, the livestock don't ask to play this game Mm -hmm. and it's difficult, even with a well-bred dog, especially a dog that hasn't seen livestock regularly. So, you know, I'm not going to, I could just take your money, right? And have three dead sheep. When I say dead sheep, just sheep that have been dogged to the point where they've given up on life and they'll just stand there no matter what happens, you know, and, and your dog can have some fun, right? But most people that are involved in the sport really they're not into that you know they're mm-hmm. they're they're wanting to focus on actually promoting the sport and you know getting dogs to move forward so to be fair to them if they're fussy about who they're taking on as students it, it's as much for for everybody's benefit the livestock's benefit the dog's benefit the owner's benefit sometimes i've had dog trainers in the past uh send students to me and I'm talking about obedience trainers. They send students to me and they say, well, the dog is a whatever, pick your herding breed and it's doing whatever bad behavior that herding breeds do. (laughs) And they say, well, you know what? That dog should take herding lessons because that'll fix the chasing, whatever, biting, whatever, usually. Right. And I, you know, for me, that's a, it's a cop out from the, from the obedience trainers. You know, I'm like, no, no, this stay in your lane. Um, fix the problem. Because if you bring your dog out to me, oh, sure, my dogs, I can walk them through a a field of sheep, and they are well mannered, and they ignore the sheep. And so they're not chasing cars, etc, etc. They weren't like that on day one. And frankly, you bring your dog to me for a lesson, I we're going to encourage some chasing behavior to start with. I mean, they are going to want to chase things, it takes a while to get the control. So feeling that, oh, if the dog has this outlet, the outlet of chasing stock, it will stop chasing cars. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. I, you know, this is, a, we could do another whole podcast episode I think, on this alone. <laughs> on and Bad because, border collie behavior. <laughs> yeah. I see it a lot where there's dogs who are struggling with, you know, fear, aggression, car chasing They're yeah. They all of like everything under the sun. Um, yeah. and people will say like, you, your dog just needs a jo- job or your dog needs yeah. to go live on a farm. And I'm like, I it's, um, 
it doesn't work that way. Like, you know, these dogs aren't struggling because they, um, they don't have a job necessarily. They're not, they're not dogs probably that the average farm would want to just take and rehab and right. like, you know, like, um, when we're talking about all of these things that you're looking for in a, in a puppy and a dog and breeding and all of these things, um, you know, the dog who is biting people on the seawall isn't on that list. Right. So, um, I think it, I think it also just packages, um, the behaviors that we're seeing incorrectly. Like I just, and it's another, I think it is another whole podcast. I I talk about a lot. (laughs) Exactly. It's its own topic. And I just lost my train of thought. And of course it was brilliant. Whatever (laughs) I was going to say was amazing. Um, Oh, okay. So here's the other thing. Oh, the dog just needs a job. There are months out of the year where my dogs do not work livestock. Months. And so we do other dog things. We do a lot of snowshoeing because there are months out of the year where I have snow up to my neck here. Yeah. And I can't work livestock because there's just so much snow. So my dogs don't have jobs and they still act the same way as they do when we do work livestock. Yes. Yeah. I mean, again, another whole podcast, but yeah. the the saying your dog needs a job for me is a pet peeve because again, I see this as so often it's advice given to um, my clients who have border collies, who have cattle dogs, who have herding breed dogs, who are fearful and aggressive and all of these things. And it doesn't it really doesn't give you a plan. It doesn't, it doesn't give you, no, you know, it's passing um, the buck. Yeah. It's passing and the buck. My dogs don't have a job. Like it's, I, I, I like the idea that we should be giving them enrichment and exercise and engagement and all of these things, but, yep. um, it's not a cure. Like it's not, and it's not the root of the, like, you know, Mozzie has, is a very fearful dog. She is my rescue cattle dog. Um, her issues don't stem from not having a job. Her issues right. stem from a lot, of, a lot of other things right. and would be another whole podcast episode. Yeah. So, um, well, speaking of that, what, what are you, so today, um, what would a day in the life of your dogs look like today when you're, uh, are you working cheap today? What are you up to? What are you going right. to do with your dogs today? So a typical day. Not today, because obviously I'm doing a podcast today, <laughs> um, but typical day. So we get up in the morning, uh, let the dogs out, they run around. I will especially, so a good chunk of the year where we're either training to get ready for trials or we're trialing, I will take the adults out for a quad run. Um, we, it's about, the loop's about 6K and involves some good hills. Steep hills are great for conditioning. So we'll do a conditioning run. Um, and then my dogs have a fair amount of freedom. There's all kinds of different ways to raise stock dogs. Whatever works for you is fine. This is what works for me. Um, so my dogs have a, a fair amount of freedom. Uh, they, after we get back from the quad run, uh, I scoop poop. Very exciting. Oh, and okay. Yeah. Yes, just like yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Just like you. And then see, you are a stock dog handler. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so then they, and then I go in and I have breakfast, that sort of thing. I will, if I'm working dogs, depending on the heat, I will choose to either work earlier or later. Um, the adult dogs. So star, for example, she doesn't get, she doesn't work sheep every day when we're training, she gets, uh, a quad run probably five days a week. Um, and then she also gets free play, which is just, we've got a big, a large 
you know, it's a very large yard in the back that the, that the dogs can run around in. Um, and then we've got trails, so she'll go for a walk. So, but the the walk, the walk on the trails, obviously she's loose as well. And the free play isn't considered part of her exercise. That's just day to day. And then she usually comes in and has breakfast with me and mooches. And uh, so then if I work the dogs, if I'm working them at home, they probably get about uh, 10 to 20 minutes a piece. Um, and then the rest of the day, I do things that pay bills uh, so that we can do the dog trialing thing. Uh, occasionally, so if I'm if the fields are available to me a couple days a week, I'm a trailer sheep to a large field where I can do big outruns, big drives, that sort of thing. And then during trial season, I will quite often drive down to work dogs with friends maybe once a month and we'll spend a weekend just where and the and on those weekends the dogs do get work quite a bit um but i don't work them constantly uh they need time to be dogs and you can you can't force a dog to herd right so you want to keep them to the point where obviously they're obedient um but they're also uh keen they want to they're enjoying the work yeah so fun I'm so jealous, but that's why you have to have lots of dogs too, because sometimes the dogs don't need as much work as you want to give, right? Because you're enjoying it so much. So if you have a number of dogs, then you can work one and then the other. And then the other thing too, is that some works go better than others. And so <laughs> if you work a lot of dogs, then generally one of them is really good on any given day. So you can focus on that was, a, that was a good work. That's so fun. I'm jealous. I love living vicariously through your photos <laughs> and just seeing the dogs out there. I just think it's so cool. Um, what's next on the trial horizon this year? Are you done? Are you? I'm done. You're done. I'm done. Well, finished. you finished it off with a, <laughs> with a, with a bang winning the last trial. Congratulations. So yeah, thanks. Thanks. And yeah. That was a good way to end the season. Good for the ego. You know, I, I, I can hang on to that now through the eight months of winter. <laughs> yeah. The snow <laughs> through the snowshoeing. And then mm -hmm. next year you'll be back into it again. Do you have any plans or are you just going to take it as it comes? Yeah. So like right now, now the trial season's over. I'm going to focus on uh, Stella and Moss uh, training them and I'll work into winter with them. And, and I'll, I'll also do a fair amount with Jake, but um, I'll work with them until the snow gets to the point where it's, it's just, not not worth it and then occasionally when i get too depressed with my life here i'll drive down in the winter to visit friends down south who don't have as much snow or have indoor facilities just just to give the dogs and i a fix um and then yeah trial season next year will probably start may for me oh wow and yeah and canadians will be in alberta next year so oh, fun. yeah so that'll be the canadians and meeker will be the focus uh the yeah. two big trials that uh, right on I'll, I'll hope to peak for. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. You know, when I am in, I think in the dog world in general training and whatever, whatever um, field or whatever, like venue of dog, the dog world you're in. I think one thing that we're missing a lot of is people who are um, good teachers. And there's one thing that I always find, and that's that like, no matter what question I ask you, no matter how basic the question is about hurting, you always will, you, you respond and you say, that's such a good question. And then you answer all of my 
very basic questions. And I think the dog world needs more um, of that. So thank you so much for doing that. Oh, that's sweet. And thank you for spending this time with the listeners today to start them off. And uh, who knows, maybe one of the people out there listening will be your, be your next competitor. <laughs> If, hey, that would be fantastic. You know, the more the merrier, really. We're we're a pretty good crowd to hang out with. And, it's uh, so much yeah. fun. But thanks Thank for having you. me. It's been great. It's been loads of fun. Thank you. And I bet you'll be back to talk about all things. Um, so, many <laughs> so many rabbit holes. So many rabbit holes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wild at Heart podcast. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Wild at Heart Dogs online at wildatheartdogs.com. I work primarily with herding breed dogs struggling with breed behaviors and reactivity, and I have a complete lineup of webinars, classes, and private virtual training options for clients. Artwork for the podcast was by the talented Ethan Beaudry, theme music by Adam Percy and inspired by Griff, our border collie. Sound editing and post-production was by Secret Clubhouse Sound on Denman Island. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like the show, subscribe and follow and leave a review. If you have a guest you'd like to suggest, please reach out to me at wildatheartdogs at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.